Again, it's good to be with you in this afternoon session. I promise you, if you'll stay awake, I will too. I want to thank everyone for all your kind words of encouragement. And it's been a great start this morning. I'm thankful uh, for every good thing that's been done in preparation and the execution of this gospel meeting. And I want you to know that uh, I consider it a privilege, uh, privilege to be here. Rick is right. I, I do farm. I don't, I don't garden. But, uh, and I try to feed most of the people in the community. In fact, some of, my, some of my denominational friends have inquired as to whether or not there was temporary membership at Burleson from June to August. Because when you go in the, if you go in the foyer, any time from about the middle of June, there's going to be about four, uh, four laundry baskets full of, uh, of stuff. Uh, and a lot of it, a lot of corn, tomatoes and whatnot, but uh, it's good therapy. You're getting out and, and breaking the dirt and being out and, and just watching God at work has always, always been good for me. Uh, my degree from Freed Harbin is in agriculture. Uh, I always wanted to farm and was never never able to farm. Uh, my cousin Sandy's here. Uh, her uh, dad is uh, my mom's brother, and uh, he farms. And, uh, and my other uncle farms. I ended up on the wrong side of the of the genealogy, so to speak. My grandparents had three children: two sons and a daughter. And I ended up being the son of the daughter. And the two sons ended up farming, and I ended up preaching. But I, uh, I I did work for Tennessee Farmers Co-op at the state headquarters uh, uh, when I graduated uh, was graduated from Freed until we left there and went into full time uh, went into full time work in uh, 1991 and uh, I tell you it's uh, it's been a blessing to my life to serve the Lord and uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't trade it for all the all the farmland in Texas I just be honest with you as much as I love farming and uh, and have a farm but uh, there's just being a gospel preacher is just a, a blessing beyond uh, beyond description, and uh, to meet so many, if for no other reason, to meet so many good people. You know, it doesn't matter doesn't matter where I go. I was in uh, West Tennessee um, um, last month, and Lord willing, and I'll be in Texas in two weeks. And it doesn't matter where I go, I meet the finest people walking the face of this earth, my brethren. And uh, being a gospel preacher and being privileged to go at, to other places. Uh, has been a tremendous blessing to my life, and y'all have been a blessing to me as well. I hope everybody's got a copy of the handout that says, How do I speak to others about the one church? And you see in your handout, if your handout looks a little bit like mine, that the letter I, or I, should be double underlined. How do I speak to others about the one church? And there's kind of a, a double meaning there. Each one of our main points in this study today will be begin with the letter I. I'm not. I used to do a lot of alliteration. I'm not that crazy about it anymore. But but I think this uh, helps us to to be reminded that each one of us has responsibility to be an evangelist. Each one of us has responsibility to uh, to defend the truth of what God's word says, particularly as it pertains to the church. And so this, you see, how do I speak to others about the one church? And the first thing I want us to know is that we're going to speak about the church. We have to speak intelligently. You know, it doesn't take you long if you're in a discussion uh, 
with somebody and you're, you're talking about some subject or another as to whether or not that person has any idea what they're talking about. It reminds me, I'm a big Andy Griffith fan. I know it probably comes a shock to all of you. But uh, I remember when Andy and Barn had been invited to be members of this real exclusive club. And, and they were going through this initiation process. And, and Barney was talking to two gentlemen about playing golf. Of course, Andy and Barney didn't play golf. But, but uh, they were talking about what kind of scores they shot. And one guy said he shot in the 90s. And one guy said he shot in the 80s. And Barney told the guy in the 80s, said, you need to be taking lessons from him. Maybe one day you can shoot in the 90s. Well, you know, it didn't take, didn't take him long to figure out Barney didn't know a whole lot about golf. I had an interesting thing happen to me a number of years ago. I was talking to a, a, a young man from Texas about turkey hunting. And I love turkey hunting. And, uh, but I usually only hunt in the last half of the season when they start getting really dumb. You know, it's like hunting deer. You, know, you hunt deer toward the end of the rut and post-rut when, they, when they, they're not as intelligent. You know, and, and, and they're tired. You know, a lot of us, when we get tired, we let our guard down. That's the only kind of deer and turkeys that I can shoot. It's kinds that's tired and let their guard down. And I kill a lot of turkeys in the last half of the season. Our season opens March 15th, stays in in April. Shoot five birds. But I never kill five birds because I don't start till there's about ten days left of the season. But I've killed some turkeys that, you know, you know, a guy kills a turkey and he lays it on the ground and he lays a beard out and, and he folds that fan up and, and, he, and he gets his picture made with that turkey fan. Now listen, if I'm lying, I'm dying. I've got some pictures of some turkeys and that fan looks like that. Because it's at the end of the season, and that old gobbler, all he's been doing for the last four, four weeks has just been fighting and scrapping with other gobblers and, and chasing hens all over. And, and like deer during the, the breeding season, they don't eat like they should. All they're concerned about is, is finding, you know, finding more hens. And, and the turkeys I killed probably weigh 20 pounds at the beginning of the season and about 14 at the end. Of, I kill a lot of 14 and 15 pound birds that have long beards and long spurs. And no tail. Well, I was talking to this young man from Texas about my turkey hunting exploits and was saying, you know, I kill a lot of birds that if I could kill them early in the season, they might weigh 20, 21 pounds, but by the time the end of the season gets here, they weigh about 14, 15, 17 pounds, all right? And I was just, just telling it kind of as a conversation piece. He said, yeah, he said, and you know, how the, you know where this is going, right, from Texas, right? Turkeys in Texas are a lot what? Bigger, that's right. He said, turkeys in Texas are a lot bigger than that. He said, uh, he said, uh, said, them guys, some of those guys out there kill some weigh nearly 50 pounds. I didn't say a word. I said, all right. Now look, butterball don't make them 50 pounds. I challenge you, find the biggest butterball turkey you can find, and if you could put the feathers and guts back in him, he won't be nowhere near 50 pounds. But it took me about five seconds to figure out that feller didn't know one thing about turkey hunting, right? Look, I, if I was only toting a shotgun, I'd be afraid to shoot a 50-pound turkey. Just make him mad, <laughs> you know? So, if, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to talk about, if, you know, if we're going to talk about things that are a lot more important than turkey hunting, we need to be able to speak intelligently. 
I mean, Sandy and I have joked about the Facebook deal, and, and you know, you know, if you can just if you've got any number of friends of various religious persuasions, you can scroll through Facebook, and you can find all the Bible ignorance you want to find on Facebook. I mean, it's like everybody that don't know five cents about the Bible gets together to pull their ignorance on Facebook. I mean, that's just the way it is. People don't know. Look, people don't know five cents about the Bible, and and it doesn't take you long to figure out. The, you know, just like any other thing, it doesn't take you very long for for people to figure out that people don't know anything about the Bible. All right. And so, if we're going to talk about the Bible and we're going to talk about the Lord's church, then we need to we need to know what we're talking about. And we need to speak intelligently. And there are four aspects to speaking intelligently about any subject. And one is, we got to study. we got to study. You know, there are a number of places in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 13, Paul says to Timothy, give attention to reading. Take heed to the doctrine and continue in it, verse 16. You know, this, the verse that we all know, you know, all members of the Church of Christ know 2 Timothy 2.15, right? You know, study to show thyself approved unto God. That word just literally means put your mind on it. It doesn't mean like studying for a test like you did in school. That's not what it means. Because you know how you study for a test at school, right? You cram it in right there at the, at the very last minute, and you put it right there in the very front of your brain, right? And then as soon as you can regurgitate it on a piece of paper, then what happens to it? Gone. That's not the kind of study that... We're talking about putting your mind, put your mind on the Word of God. Read it. Meditate on it. Study it. Spend some time with it. Chew on it. Struggle with it. If we want to speak intelligently about the, the Bible, and particularly about the church, we've got to study about it. But then number two, we've got to exercise some sense. You know, there are a lot of people that know a lot of things, but they don't have a, a plug nickels worth of common sense to know how to tell it. You know, I had uh, my first semester, I didn't start school at Freed Harbor, and I started at Murray State over in Murray, Kentucky. And uh, unfortunately, I made a real high grade or high score in the natural sciences part of the ACT. So they put me in the hardest stinking chemistry class that they had offered for freshmen. You know, all my friends are taking chemistry 103, 105, also known as football chemistry. I'm in chemistry 129, the highest level freshman chemistry and I had this guy, Dr. Anderson, and he filled up six, eight, ten blackboards an hour. I mean, it was just brutal. It was so bad. Look, it was, I'm going to tell you, it was so bad. I didn't go to class the last eight weeks because there wasn't no sense in it. Class starts at 7.30. I think I made a 50-something on the first test. Made about 60-something on the next test, and that was with the curve. I'm, like, I'm just wasting my time and anybody else's. So I just slept in. Sleep was a whole lot more important. You know, I could fail that class and go, or I could fail that class and sleep. I just failed to sleep. Alright? That guy, now, that guy was extremely intelligent. He knew all you needed to know about chemistry, but he was not a very good communicator because there were a lot of smart kids in that class with me that were really, really struggling. You know, we got to be able to know how to communicate what we know. Uh, in, in Colossians 3 and verse 6 says, 
Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you might know how you ought to answer every man. We've got to understand how to respond to people properly. You know, the, two different people can ask the exact same question, but the answer is not the same always, even if it's the same question. You know, three times our New Testament teaches us that we read the question, in essence, what must I do to be saved? And there's three different answers given in all, in, in all three cases. In Acts 2, they asked it in verse 37. Peter said, repent and be baptized. They'd already, they had to be told to believe. They believed. They had to be told to repent. The jailer had to be told to believe in Jesus. He didn't even know who Jesus was. He just knew that Paul and Silas had something he didn't have. Something that was enabled them to sing, sing at midnight, even though they'd been beaten and been put in stocks and all these things. And he wanted some of that. But he needed to be told to believe. He, told, he asked the exact same question as the day on the day of Pentecost, but he got a different answer because he was in a different place. Well, then you had Saul of Tarsus, Acts 9, he asked the Lord the same thing. Lord, what will you have me to do? He said, go to Damascus and there be told you what you ought to do. Now, first of all, it wasn't Jesus' place to tell him what to do. When Jesus left this earth, he left his plan in the hands of men. It wasn't Jesus' place to tell Jesus or tell Saul of Tarsus what to do. He said, there's a man in, in Damascus that will tell you what you ought to do. And Jesus appointed that man to go to him. What was he told? And now why terrorists I'll rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. He already believed. He already had repented. He'd been praying for three days. He hadn't, been, hadn't had anything to eat or drink or sleep in three days. He was very repentant. So he was in a different place. He asked the same question got a different answer. And so we need to understand that there are no pat answers to any particular Bible question. Depends on the person, depends on the, depends on the context, depends on the situation. And we need, to, we need to learn how to exercise, well, it's common sense, it's just not that common anymore. Then we need to practice self-restraint. Man, that's hard sometimes. I've studied with, I've studied with a lot of people in the last 25 years, and there's, listen, there are sometimes, there's sometimes I just want to reach across the, the table and either grab them by the throat, or slap them, or, or both, because I was so frustrated. Sometimes, sometimes I, and sometimes I think they were just being stubborn. You know, and sometimes that was the case. But we're, you know, we're not, as Brother Woodson used to say, we're not allowed to sacrifice some principles of the Bible to, in order to defend others. So there's never any excuse to be ugly with people, to be harsh or, 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 or overbearing. And you know the Bible teaches us that that our speech is to is uh, in a, is to be with grace and it is to administer grace to the hearer, Ephesians four and verse twenty nine. And then lastly, simplicity. You know there there are two two songs I like. One of them by Leonard Skinner, Simple Man. One of them by Charlie Daniels, Simple Man. <laughs> I'm a simple man. I'm a simple guy. I, I I take pleasure in simple things. I try to speak simply. I'm not here to impress anybody with my vocabulary or any, or anything like that. I'm here to try to communicate to the best of my ability the word of God to the audience that I have. That's my that's the only job I've got. When I stand here, my only job is to communicate the word of God as clearly and as simply as I possibly can. In Mark 12 and verse 37, the Bible says, "The common people heard Jesus gladly." What's that tell you? It tells you that Jesus talked to the common man. 
at his level, in terms that he could understand. Again, consider all the, the, the things that Jesus said in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Behold the fowls of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather into barns. Behold the lilies of the field, how they grow, they don't toil or spin. Look at all those very simple pictures that Jesus painted, spoke in very simple language. The, the Sermon on the Mount is one of the greatest texts in all the Bible, and yet it is so simple. doesn't mean it's easy, but it's simple. And we need to learn to speak with simplicity to, to communicate uh, to those, those truths to, to others. Then secondly, we're going to have to speak inclusively. Now this is where a lot of my brethren miss the boat. They want to emphasize, they want to start by emphasizing the differences instead of emphasizing the common ground. I'm just going to go ahead and forward that so that, so it'll be, it'll all be up there at the same time. Look. There's not, a, there's not a man or woman walking the face of this earth that believes Acts 2.38 more than me. You can't believe it more than me. You might be believe it as much as me, but you can't believe it more. There's not a man woman walking the face of this earth believes Mark 16.16 more than me. You might believe it as much as me, but you can't believe it more. But that's not where you go start when you knock on somebody's door. You know, when you sit down to study with somebody, you don't start with what divides you. You start with what unites you. You know, th- you know, my wife, believe it or not, my wife and I don't agree on everything. I know, hard to believe. She's wrong about a lot of stuff. But you know, when we first started dating, we didn't talk about the things we didn't agree on, did we? We found out the things we did agree on. The things that we had in common. You know, our backgrounds, our, our home congregations, you know, our likes, you know, and the common ground on things we don't like. You know, that's where you, you know, that's where you start a relationship. You don't start a relationship by, by building a wall of separation. You start by emphasizing the common ground. And in order to do that, you have to have dialogue. And dialogue means the conversation goes in both directions. You know, you know, we need to listen to people. And I'm going to talk about that in just, in just a minute. We've got to make sure that people understand that, that this is a discussion. You know, this, is not, you know, this is not a dictation. Uh, you know, this is not a monologue. You know, this is not I talk and you listen. You know, we want to speak inclusively. We want, we want to we build relationships. We want to f- establish the common ground. By the way, if you can establish certain degrees of common ground, it will help you down the road when the difficulties come. Now, Rick can tell you this because he's been through Fishers of Men, and I've, I've been through it, probably taught it 20 times. You know, and the one thing, you know, the one thing that, that, that that program does at the very beginning is, says this, the Bible is going to be our rule, is going to be the standard. You know, the Bible, you know, the Bible's the Word of God, and it's the standard. And so, therefore, whatever questions we have, the Bible's going to answer. I'm not going to answer that question. The Bible's going to answer. If we get to the point where we don't agree on something, it's not that you and I don't agree. It's that one of us, or both, is not in agreement with the Bible. And the Bible is going to be the standard to which we hold ourselves. And so it establishes that from the outset. Now, does it always work out that way? No. It doesn't always work out that way. Because they're going to fall back on what their preacher said, what their mama believed, what their granddaddy taught them, or you know, what they heard, you know, on television. 
but at least you're attempting to establish a common ground that the Bible's the Word of God and the Bible contains all the answers that, that we need. You know, it gives us all things that pertain under life and God in the Second Peter chapter 1 and verse number 3. So we want to speak inclusively. But then, we want to speak incrementally. See that little ruler there? Those marks are increments. Increments. You know, sometimes we have to we have to check ourselves and look as a preacher, and and, and thinking back on, on on my work over the last twenty five years, um, you know, I've tried to feed them the whole bale of hay in the first first time I sat down. You know, a cow can eat a bale of hay, but he ain't gonna eat all at one time. But you know, we have to teach people. Think about this: we got to. Uh, well, let me put it up here. Sometimes we've got to teach as if we're talking to a little child. You know, I, I, you know, I, watched, uh, I watched some of the little babies downstairs eating. You know, and at Burleson, we've been blessed. We've been blessed with three babies to be born in the last uh, 14 months. And we've got another one coming in September. Man, people excited at Burleson. Man, we love our babies. But you watch those babies, you know, when they first start eating well, baby food. You know, it's a small spoon with a small, you know, with a small cup in it. Because, you know, you give them a big spoon, it's the same food, right? But what happens if you feed that baby too much too fast? Spit it out, right? Well, Bible's the same way. You know, some people are only able to, only able to take in and, 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 and understand and hold on to a certain amount of Bible at, at a time. And with that in mind, there are some people who have to be fed in little bitty bites. You know, you know, and a baby don't eat three squares a day. You know, a baby eats ten squares a day. You know, just, you know, just enough to satisfy that hunger and then to the next time. And people are the same way. If a person's really interested in learning the Bible, if you feed them a little bit and you give them a taste of it and they're really interested, you know what? They're going to want more. They're going to want more. And the more they want, the more they can handle. Because now the mindset has changed. I gotta, you know, I gotta get me some of this. And so we, we, we speak incrementally. A little bit by little bit. By the way, Jesus practiced this principle. Go back. In John 16 and verse 12, he said, there are many other things I have to tell you. Did you hear that? Those guys had been walking with him every day for three years plus. Three plus years. And he said, and you think, well, after three years, I've heard it all, right? No. <laughs> no. There are many other things that I have to say to you. But you are not able to bear them now. And so, even Jesus, with, with the twelve, practiced this, increment, this incremental teaching. And then, of course, after he left, he sent the Holy Spirit and says, and he'll bring into remembrance all the things that I've taught you. And then he's going to guide you into all truth, John 16 and verse number uh, 13. Then we need to learn to speak intuitively. Intuitively. It means that we've got to listen. Seek to understand before we seek to be understood. If you can understand, if you're talking to an individual, if you can understand their background and a little bit about them, that'll help you go a long way in, in directing the conversation 
Again, in the proper direction. Again, remember we said, same three questions, three different answers. Our, our intuition, our, our perception, we call this evangelistic, we call this evangelistic perception in Fishers of Men. In other words, you gather everything you see and everything you hear and you, and you put the whole package together and then you can formulate a plan to speak. I'm reminded of, there's an older lady and I've never had the opportunity to study the Bible with her, but, but I have delivered some corn to her on a number of occasions and and I remember taking it, uh, taking it into her house for the very first time, and I really didn't know a whole lot about her background. And the first thing, the first thing I saw when I walked into her house was a big picture of Jesus. I'm assuming it was Jesus. It looked like all the other pictures of Jesus. All right. Turn the corner, and I go in the living room. There's about five more pictures of Jesus. And then I find, hanging up, this little string of beads. Now, I see some of you nodding, some of you shaking, and you're shaking because you know what I'm talking about. That's exactly right. Without ever saying a word, I knew exactly what she was, didn't I? I knew exactly what she was. Without her telling me, without, without me at, without any... In other words, that's the idea of using, using what you see... And what you hear to help you make a proper perception and show you which way to go. In Acts 23, the Bible says, Paul perceived. He, in other words, the word that he understood. That some were Pharisees and some were Sadducees. I don't know how he did that. Maybe they dressed differently. I don't know enough about them to know. Maybe they dressed differently. Or maybe it was the case that because the high priest was a Sadducee, that, that he saw that there was some division, that there were some guys maybe huddled over here by the high priest and, and some of them that were kind of separated themselves. I don't know. But I do know this. Paul figured it out in short order. And what did he do? He used that to his advantage. He said, because of the hope of the resurrection, I'm called into question this day. Now, why would he say that? Because the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in soul or spirit or angel, resurrection. They didn't believe in none of that. The Pharisees did. So then what did the Pharisees decide to do? Well, they saddled up with Paul. Well, if an angel spoken to him, we better not, you know, you know he, he's, he's pretty good. What about that is this? Paul said something that the Pharisees knew that the Sadducees didn't like, so therefore, all of a sudden, Paul became their friend. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That ain't no way, you know, that's no way to go through life. But it worked out fairly well for Paul in that particular situation, to some degree. But the point of the, point of the matter is, Paul figured it out. Without having to ask, without having to be told, Paul figured it out. Speak intuitively. Then, we've got to speak inquisitively. Ask questions. That's another big part of fishers and men. Asking questions. Asking open questions. That are questions that cannot be answered yes or no. Questions that require the person to think about formulating a response. Answer questions with questions. And by the way, they didn't come up with that in fishers and men. <laughs> Jesus used that tactic a long time before, before those uh, good brethren uh, wrote the fishers and men program. But answer questions with questions. Now, before we get to the Jesus practicing this principle, you can go ahead and fill in your blanks on authority and taxes. 
you know, but a good, a good question when somebody asks a potentially volatile question is, where did you hear that? You know, now I know none of you have ever been asked this question or been or heard anybody say this about the church, but this happened to me a time or two. You think you're the only ones going to heaven? Anybody ever, besides me, anybody else here ever heard that? Besides everybody? Anybody besides everybody? All right, now, look. In order to avoid conflict, a lot of our brothers say, well, we believe that whoever does what the Bible says will go to heaven. And that's right, but that's a terrible answer. You know why? Because the people in that building right over there and the people in the building right beyond that one all believe they're doing what the Bible says. Right? You know, you know, find me the church that raises his hand and says, we are not doing what the Bible says. Well, ain't nobody going to say that. That's why that's a terrible answer. You know, when somebody says something like that, say, where'd you hear that? Who told you that? Why'd you ask me that? Well, now all of a sudden, you've taken the onus off of you, and you've put it back on the person that's asked the question. And you've potentially diffused a potentially volatile situation. So, by asking questions, by speaking inquisitively, oh, there's, look, there is no rule in the Bible that says we have to answer everybody's question. It just says we've got to be ready to give an answer. <laughs> right? There's nothing that says I've got to answer the question. Because Jesus didn't answer all the questions. For example, in the one pertaining to authority. You remember the authority police decided they'd ask Jesus a few questions. By what authority do you do these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus said, I'll ask you a question. You answer my question, I'll answer yours. They said, okay. He said, the baptism of John, where did it come from, heaven or men? So he answered the question with another question. And so what did they do? They huddled up over inside and said, well, if we say it's from God, He's going to ask it from heaven, He's going to ask us why we didn't obey it. And if we say from men, we might get whooped because everybody believes John's a prophet. We don't, we don't want to fight the crowd. Then they said, we cannot answer. No, they could answer. They just refused. But the whole point was, they, pre- they pretended or portended to be the authority police. So Jesus asked them a question about authority. And when they couldn't answer that question about authority, He wasn't obligated to answer their question about authority. You see? Answer questions with, with questions. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Cut to the chase. Here's the question. Whose picture's on the money? That, 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 that's what it boiled down to, right? Is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar or not? Whose picture's on the money? Well, Caesar's. Then render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. End of discussion. In a discussion. And so, speaking inquisitively... By the way, if you speak inquisitively, it also indicates that you are interested in what the other person has to say. And again, it diffuses potentially volatile situations. Speak illustratively. That's the only I word I come up Just a big $10 word meaning you pictures. Use Pictures. Picture's worth a thousand words, right? I mean, we, we say that all the time, and it's really true. I mean, look at all the pictures that Jesus painted as we consider the Sermon on the Mount from this morning. Salt and light. Birds and flowers. 
two gates, wolves in sheep's clothing. The need for obedience. The picture of, of, a, of a house being built on a rock and the picture of a house being built uh, on the sand. You know, I, I just got a, I just got a email from some friends of mine in West Africa. Um, they built a church building on the side of a hill. At the time, it wasn't a bad location. What they didn't count on was the people at the bottom of the hill starting to build and erosion and rain, and it rains a lot there. And 15 years later, the building they worked so hard to build fell off hillside. Fell off the hillside. Right? But if they'd have built it on top of the hill instead of the side of the hill, built it on a rock instead of on something that, that wasn't firm, that building would still be here today. I mean, we can, you know, we can look at the, at the pictures that Jesus painted. We can see all these things in our lives. All, all we've got to do is look around us. We can see all the pictures that Jesus painted. Think about the pictures that we find of the church, three of them in particular. Church is a kingdom. It's got a king, subjects, law, and a boundary. You know, all kingdoms have to have those things. You know, king, subjects, law, and a boundary. Church is a body, one head and one body. It's described like marriage. One husband and one wife, Romans 7, 1 to 4. Ephesians 5, 23 to 32. There are 12 nouns and pronouns used in that text to describe the church, and all of them are singular. <laughs> That's not an accident. How do we, what do we know then? We know that the church is singular. The church. Upon this rock I will build my church. It's singular. I'm going to show you something here. You can draw this on the back of your hand out if you want. But you can just draw this little figure here. I'd draw it right in the middle of the paper because if, if you're going to write it out, it's going to be some on both sides. Alright? Off the head, you can write the head. And off the body, you can write body. Colossians 1 and verse 18, speaking about Christ, says, He is the head of the body, comma, the church. He's the head of the body of the church. That's what the text says. So the head is what? Head's Christ. And the body is the what? Church. It's not a trick question. I just gave you the answer. I mean, I just gave you the text. Not a trick question. The head is Christ. The body is the church. Now, in your body there's something that gives it life and removes impurities. In fact, from the beginning days of the Old Testament, from the, well, it's not from the beginning, but from Genesis chapter 9, and the account of Noah, and then in the Mosaic Law, and then in Acts 15, there's something we've all been forbidden to eat. Because it's the life of the body. What is it? The blood. The blood gives the body life and removes impurities. You know, the, 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 the blood carries oxygen to all the parts of your body. It carries nutrients to all parts of your body. And then after it drops off that load, it picks up a load and then goes and takes the things that are bad for your body and filters them through our various organ systems and then, then they are eliminated. That's why, isn't it interesting that 4,000 years ago, God said the life of the body is in the blood. You know, that's what He told Noah. The life of the body is in the blood. Remember we said that the Bible's not a science book. <laughs> Wherever it speaks about science, it's right. And the life of the body is in the blood. Now, your blood is where? Where's your blood? It's in your body, right? Just like my blood's in my body. 
And my blood not in your body, and your blood not in my body. Same thing goes for the body of Christ. His blood is in His body. And it's His blood, and it's nobody else's blood. And it's the only blood that cleanses from sins. So now let's go to the other side. How many heads? One. How many bodies? One. Now let me ask you a question. Is that the picture that we have in the religious world today? One head and one body? Not even close, is it? Not even close to that. It's more like one head and 2,500 bodies. 2,500 bodies all claiming the same head. Ask a question. What would you do if you're going down the river walk and coming up the other way was a head that had about 15 bodies hanging off of it? What would you do? You'd run, wouldn't you? You'd run. You know what I'd do? I'd throw a 50 pound turkey on it. Think about it. Now there are 2,500 religious bodies in this country all claiming to be attached to the same head. And it just won't work. There's one head and there's one body. Now again, where's the blood? It's in the body. The blood is in the body. Now here's the $64,000 question. If the blood is in the body, and the blood is the only thing in this universe that can remit even a single sin, then how do I get where the blood is? That's, you know, that's what I want to know. If the blood's in the body, and I can only be remitted of my sins in the blood, which is in the body, then i got to ask the question, how do I get in the body? And the, and the Bible answers that. Galatians 3 and verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You know, there's not one place in the Bible that says you can believe into Christ. You can believe in Christ, but you can't believe into Him. There's not one passage in the Bible that says you can repent into Christ. There's not one passage in the Bible that says you can confess into Christ. There's only one way to get into Christ according to the book. And that's to be baptized into Christ. How do I get in that body? Baptism. Now look, there's three simple verses and a very simple illustration that refute more than a dozen different religious errors. For example, who the head of the church is. Ain't the Pope. It's Christ. It's only one body. That body is the church. By the way, don't let anybody ever tell you the church don't save anyone. You ever hear somebody say, ah, church don't save anybody? You better back up. Church is the body of Christ. The body of Christ is where the blood of Christ is. If any man wants to be saved, we've got to be saved by the blood of Christ. Which means we've got to be saved by the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is the church of Christ.
And I don't mean in any kind of denominational way. It's the, the church that belongs to Christ. And the only way to get in is to be baptized into Christ. Now a question, is this baptism necessary to be saved? Absolutely it is. And by the way, what I love about this illustration is that you don't have to use any of the verses that most people that want to argue about baptism want to fuss over. You don't have to argue about, well, it doesn't say, you don't, doesn't say baptism in the last half of Mark 16. You don't have to worry about what uh, for the remission of sins means in Acts 2.38. All the, all the verses that people want to talk about and argue about with regard to baptism, you can just throw it. Again, I'm speaking accommodatively now. You can throw them out the window with this. The, you know, the, picture said, the, the picture tells the tale. Three simple verses and a very simple illustration that you can draw on the back of a restaurant napkin at McDonald's. Look at, look at, all, look at all the Bible truths you can convey to people about it. And then lastly, we've got to speak insistently. You know what that picture is? It's a backbone. We got some backbone. We got too many brethren. We got too many worms in the church. Ain't got no backbone. Invertebrates. Look, I already said, ain't no, we don't have to be rude. We don't have to be unkind. We don't have to be harsh. But folks, we got to have some backbone. We need people in the church that's got backbone. We got to speak insistently insistently buy the truth and sell it not Proverbs 23 verse 23 we cannot change the truth to accommodate others Jesus didn't change it I'm just going to go ahead I'm going to uh, leave this for now because we're about out of time there's a lot of things on your handout you can find them on your own the 401st prophet Micaiah 1 Kings 22 13 and 14 Jehoshaphat and Ahab got together and they were going to go to war. And the 400 prophets of Baal told Ahab, Go to war! God will, God will be with you! Jehoshaphat says, Isn't there a prophet of the Lord we can talk to? <laughs> Instead of this paid clergy system you got? <laughs> Ahab says, There is, but I hate him. <laughs> Why you hate him, Ahab? Because he don't say nice things about me. That's what the text says. I hate him because he don't say nice things about me. Jesus says, go get him. Those 400 prophets of Baal went to Micah and said, now listen, you're going to go with the king and you're going to tell him to go to war. Because all of us have done told him to go to war and they've called for you and we want you to say what we've already said. Here's what Micah said. If there were ever better words come out of the mouth of a man, I don't know what they were. As the Lord lives and speaks unto me, that shall I say. In other words, I don't care how many of you there are. I don't care who the king is. I don't care who my audience is. I don't care what the subject is. As the Lord lives and speaks unto me, that's what I'm going to say. God give us more people like that. Speak insistently. Jesus didn't back off His message in Matthew 15. Don't you know the Pharisees were offended by what you said? Jesus, oh, well, let me go apologize. I don't think so. They're blind leaders of the blind. The blind lead the blind. You know the rest. 
What about that rich young ruler, Matthew 19? He's the guy every church wants on their roll. He's rich, he's young, he's got authority. Oh man, his name looked good on the roll. Looked good for him coming in and out on Sunday morning. Jesus gave him some words he didn't like. When he turned and went away, Jesus didn't change his message for that man either. That's why Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Insistent. Jesus didn't change his message for nobody. And we're not at liberty to change the Bible for anybody. We've got to say what the Bible says. We've got to speak the truth in love, but we've got to speak the truth. Speak insistently. Listen, there's a lot of honest, a lot of honest hearts within a mile of this building, or two miles or five miles, that need to hear the gospel of Christ, that want to hear the gospel of Christ. The problem is not that there aren't good and honest hearts out there. The problem is we've got too many Christians afraid to open up a mouth. 